Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Since the 1980s, California has faced a worsening housing crisis as development continues to lag behind national and historical averages and the state's population swells. Facing a tangle of obstacles from intensive zoning and environmental laws to high land cost and NIMBY resistance, California has to double its housing production to keep pace with demand. Tune in as shareholder Chris Gian, policy advisor Steve Stenzler, and associate Mac Carlson talk about why the housing shortage is more than a social issue, how developers and housing coalitions are trying to get creative, the impact and interplay of local governments, and how the state legislature is responding. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Brownstein Podcast. This is Chris Guillen. I'm a shareholder at our Natural Resources Department, and I'm here to talk with Steven Stenzler, a policy analyst in our Sacramento office, and Matt Carlson, an associate in our Natural Resources office about housing. Uh, Steven and Matt, do you want to say hi? Good afternoon. Hi, Chris. Great to be here. So uh, to start, I wanted to sort of lay out the groundwork for why we're talking about housing and why it's such an issue in California. So just a bit of background on the uh, troubles that we're facing. In 2015, the Legislative Analyst's Office prepared a report entitled California's High Housing Costs, Causes and Consequences. The report found the following, that in 1940, the average California home cost about 20% more than the average U.S. home. This gap stayed relatively the same until the 1970s when home prices in California began to accelerate. Prices were 80% above U.S. levels by 1980, and by 2010, the typical California home was twice as expensive as the typical U.S. home. At the same time, between 1980 and 2010, construction of new housing units in California's coastal metros was low by national and historical standards. During this 30-year period, the number of housing units in the typical U.S. metro grew by 54%, compared to just 32% for the state's coastal metros. There are many reasons cited in the report why additional housing has not been constructed, but a few are community resistance to housing, the high cost of land, and the state's environmental laws. As an example of the barriers to development, a recent report found that in 2020, nearly 50% of California's annual housing production was challenged in a CEQA lawsuit. This has led to an $884,000 average home price as of 2022 in California, compared to just $430,000 at the national average. And the State Department of Housing and Community Development recently estimated that the state needs to construct more than 2.5 million homes by 2030 in order to meet demand. All right, so obviously we have this really big issue at the state with housing shortage, increased housing uh, costs. Stephen, has the legislature tried to respond to this issue? What's happening at the state? Can you fill us in? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the focus up here is building housing at all income levels from shelter to interim housing to affordable to market rate. There's been a kind of an alliance of all the housers in that space working together to push some really big laws. The focus this year is on CEQA reform. We'll talk a little bit about that later. But uh, as you know, CEQA is one of the main tools that can be used to delay or stop a housing project. So big focus on streamlining and um, bypassing CEQA where appropriate. Another focus is enforcement from the Attorney General's Office and the Department of Housing and Community Development, giving additional authority 
to the AG to actually implement a lot of the laws that have been passed in the last few years. Uh, also, you know, looking at some of the less common but still important impediments to housing, uh, one this year is about timelines for utilities to interconnect new housing. We've seen examples of big multifamily projects that are sitting there waiting for people to move in because the utilities can't get out fast enough to actually energize the project. And so big battle going on right now between the IOUs and the houses over timelines in that space. Thanks, Stephen, for filling us in on at what's happening at the state level. Uh, on the local end, I want to pass it to Mac. Uh, but before doing so, I want to uh, share a, a, a conversation that I had with a local housing advocate uh, not too long ago. He was saying that over the past five or six years, it seems like the conversation is really focused on around the fact that we need more housing and, and, and how do we actually implement additional housing in areas. But now as we're going through this housing element process, which Mac, I hope you can talk about, it seems like the conversation is shifted back towards whether we actually need housing in the first place. And so I'm, I'm hoping you can help fill uh, the listeners in on why we're having that backtracking process. Great, thanks, Chris. A little background to start here on uh, housing element law. Uh, the housing element is a mandatory requirement of cities and counties general plans. Uh, city and counties general plans are effectively the constitution for the agency to guide uh, its decision-making process, particularly around land use and housing issues. Uh, the legislator at the state level has enacted a series of laws over the last couple years focused on creating uh, more housing by increasing the commitments that local agencies need to make in their housing element, particularly around providing special needs housing and additional lower income units, as well as affirmatively furthering fair housing throughout their jurisdiction. Uh, typically this process, how this process comes about is the local regional entities, as well as the state develop what's called a regional housing needs assessment that projects the number of new housing units that need to be constructed within an eight-year period uh, within the jurisdictions. In recent years, the uh, number of new units that jurisdictions need to accommodate has uh, doubled or sometimes quintupled since prior housing element periods. So local agencies are really having to invest substantial resources in identifying sites within their, uh, within their jurisdiction to rezone to accommodate uh, new housing and for all income categories, particularly lower and very low income categories. And that process, which is still ongoing, has uh, kind of activated many individuals who would like to see fewer houses built um, within their area. So I think that's where the primary point of pushback uh, has started is, is county, local agencies, counties and cities are attempting to plan for new housing and uh, anti-development groups are pushing back on those requirements. You know, Mac, I think it's interesting to hear your perspective and the conversations that are happening at the local level and how they contrast with what's happening in Sacramento. And I, I feel like there is this issue is coming to the head where local control versus state requirements is just the heat is getting turned up slowly by RENA. And then you've got you know new authorities coming down from the legislature 
that act as these kind of pain points for locals. And if you listen to the rhetoric on both sides, you know, there's on the, you know, the anti-growth side, there's been rumblings about a statewide ballot measure to completely remove the state's authority to have, uh, you know, on for housing and for zoning. And then on the pro-growth side, you've got people up here saying, you know, locals have too much authority when it comes to planning and maybe we should take even more away. And so it's interesting to see, you know, what's going to happen in the next few years as these issues really play out. Absolutely. I think there's there's good actors and bad actors on, on both sides. And I think local agencies are struggling, uh, even those that want to implement state laws to the maximum extent feasible. They're still in reactive mode because there's all every year there's an onslaught of new housing bills um, that require zoning code changes, amendments and updates in order to incorporate those into the local codes or the, the backdrop of against the backdrop of state law. And so there's plenty of jurisdictions that want to push back on those requirements. And there's other jurisdictions that that want to implement them and see housing as a, a priority. Uh, but are needing to dedicate significant staff time and resources to pushing those projects forward to accommodate local housing. So it seems like we're having a perfect storm of events here where we have a a severe housing shortage. We have the state forcing local agencies to uh, take a, a more affirmative hand with planning for housing. And we have folks living in these jurisdictions coming to the reality that additional housing may be coming to their area. Uh, and so we, we started this conversation by mentioning CEQA on a couple of different occasions. CEQA is the, is the state's uh, California Environmental Quality Act. CEQA requires a local agency to undertake environmental review for discretionary projects. And it's provided um, uh, quite the opportunity for folks that are attempting to prevent housing development from moving forward because it's a low, low hurdle, low, low bar to actually file a lawsuit challenging an agency's CEQA review for a particular project, and that case can take sometimes years to resolve. And so one of the big pushes at the state level has been to try to streamline environmental review for certain housing projects or exempt uh, uh, environmental review for housing projects altogether as a way to take this tool out of housing opponents tool shed. And, and so, Stephen, you mentioned that there's movement uh, this year at the state level in trying to reform CEQA to prevent this sort of CEQA abuse. Can you fill us in a bit on, on what's happening up at the state? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can't throw a rock in this town without hitting someone who's working on a CEQA bill right now. It's actually pretty amazing. Uh, just this week, a bill passed to provide a CEQA exemption for 100% affordable projects in kind of smart growth urban areas. Um, there's bills about exempting new electrical infrastructure from CEQA in order to keep up with the capacity that's needed to serve new housing and, and new renewable energy generation. Uh, there's talks about CEQA exemptions or streamlining for water storage projects, groundwater conveyance, things like that. So it's not just housing, but it all comes back to housing when, because that's one of the big drivers of these other issues. Uh, you know, one I think is interesting is a bill about unmasking the plaintiffs or petitioners in CEQA lawsuits. It's been a long time complaint of folks in the CEQA space that, that you can file a lawsuit and not even have, know where it's coming from. Uh, that one's working its way through right now. One that I thought was, 
pretty interesting that it has to exist was uh, a bill to clarify that you cannot challenge a project uh, under CEQA for receiving financial assistance from the state, like tax credits. And that was a, something that affordable projects were running into, or just the mere provision of money by the state was considered a, an environmental impact that needed to be analyzed. And so they've got to write a bill for that. Um, you know, but we've also seen how these laws can actually speed up housing. You know, one of the kind of flagship streamlining CEQA bills for California is SB 35. It's been used to build a lot of affordable projects over the last couple of years. Gives by right development for projects that have specified affordability and density um, requirements. That bill's coming up for renewal right now. It's sunset is coming up. So big uh, discussion about renewing that one, potentially expanding it. You know, environmentalists are involved in the conversation, labor's involved, housing's involved. And so we'll see that one come to a head later this year. So just a quick follow-up there. My understanding is that the environmentalists and the labor unions have been tough to get on the same page for CEQA streamlining. And often it's the case because uh, labor likes to see uh, prevailing wage requirements in these CEQA streamlining bills because they use CEQA lawsuits to extract prevailing wage requirements for uh, projects, uh, oftentimes through a project labor agreement. Uh, how How is that issue being addressed at the state level? Yeah, it, it's definitely uh, an issue. And I'll say it's not just labor and environmental, it's any person or entity or group that wants to slow down a project has found that CEQA is a cost-effective way to do that. And we've heard examples of businesses getting sued by their competitors for trying to move in under CEQA. So it's uh, it's a well-intentioned law that has found a home with a lot of people who want to use it for other purposes. In terms of the labor and environmental uh, you know, dynamic, I didn't call it this, but it's been called the unholy alliance in Sacramento between those two because they both have different interests, but they often work together to kill uh, CEQA reform bills. I will say that there's been progress being made on both sides. Uh, last year, Big Bill AB 2011 and SB 6 were both streamlining bills that had the support of a large contingent of labor who started to come around to the idea that more housing not only benefits their members because it provides more jobs, but their members are actually the ones who need to live in this housing and who are actually commuting you know, two hours one way these days to get to their job sites. And so they've started to realize that housing benefits them as well, and so they're getting on board. And then on the environmental side, we've been beating this drum for a long time, but the, the best thing you can do for the environment is have dense urban infill housing built near transit. And the result of CEQA lawsuits is generally that those kind of projects don't get built because there's a lot of neighbors and a lot of potential opponents, whereas greenfield projects that are out in a farmland with no neighbors can, you know, developer can make it happen. So it actually is having the effect of, of um, being counterproductive for the environment. So some of the more forward-thinking environmental groups are starting to pick up on that and come around. Um, the, the bill on 100% affordable housing had some environmental, I won't say support because they didn't come in support, but they were okay with it. So we're seeing a, a mindset change here. Thanks, Stephen, for filling us in on what's happening at the state level again. Mac, can you fill us in on what the builder's remedy is? I understand that there's this new discovery in state law that's 
helping developers uh, preempt local control over projects that they may not be so keen to. Yes, Chris, the builder's remedy is all over the news. Uh, ever since a Santa Monica developer uh, pitched, uh, I think, 5,000 new units, uh, all pursuant to builder's remedy applications. Um, and so it's, but it's helpful to understand a little bit more about the context because this law has been on the books since the 1990s, but has really only come to the forefront in the last uh, year or so. And part of that is getting back to the housing element process. Uh, given the more onerous requirements uh, for local jurisdictions to adopt a housing element, many more agencies are not uh, able to have their housing elements certified by the California Department of Housing and Community Development. And that opens the door for developers to submit a builder's remedy application, which is an application for a housing project that provides at least 20% of the units available uh, in the project to lower income households or 100% of the units for moderate or middle income households. And for those types of projects, under this builder's remedy provision, the project does not need to comply with the city's zoning and land use designations. So while the city is out of compliance uh, with state housing element law. And so uh, for these jurisdictions that haven't adopted a substantially compliant housing element, uh, developers are looking at this builder's remedy provision to try to get their affordable projects developed. Uh, this is a, a surprisingly untested area of the law, and there are still other bases that local agencies can use to deny projects, but they're very narrow. Uh, so the, specifically, there's findings requirements that a project would have to have a significant an unavoidable impact on public health and safety based on objective standards. Uh, the project would either need to violate uh, state or federal law, and there's no feasible method to mitigate that without rendering the project unaffordable to lower income households. And then this other one that I think is coming up more frequently in our practice is uh, the project site is zoned for agriculture or resource protection and is surrounded by ag and resource protection or it lacks adequate water and wastewater services. So uh, that one in particular I, uh, provision that would allow a local agency to still deny a project has come up a few times in that uh, it's in theory designed to prevent urban sprawl, but often what's happening is that some of these agricultural sites or properties are uh, you know, within the boundaries of an existing city and some of the only vacant land that's viable for housing projects. Uh, but the, the builder's remedy, I think, will remain out there and active as long as local jurisdictions have not adopted their housing elements. And it'll be interesting to see how the law evolves here, given that there's uh, been probably close to 100 applica uh, builder's remedy applications uh, in jurisdictions throughout the state. I want to ask you what you mean by substantial compliance for housing elements, but perhaps we leave that for our upper level class that's that's sure to follow. Why don't we wrap this up now? And I want to ask Stephen and Mac here what they wish somebody would under, could understand about this issue, why it's so important uh, and how it's impacting the state. And I can chime in here myself, but why don't we start with Stephen? I think the thing that I wish that people would understand is that we are so deep in the hole on housing that whatever they're seeing right now is the, the tip of the iceberg because you know we're we're by various estimates 2.5 million units in deficit on housing and 
it's having an impact on the quality of life and across multiple different sectors and on the environment, on people's income, on people, you know, ability to come to the state for work or on big businesses who are now very involved in the housing space because of this. And not only are we deep in the housing crisis, but it took several decades to get here and it's not going to change overnight. And so while it may seem like we're passing a lot of laws and the pace of change is, is really fast, we have so far to go to get back to a place where we're in a sustainable housing market that, um, you know, it's, it's really going to look different when it's all done. And I think people need to understand that we're in, we're in this for the long haul and we're going to keep working on this issue for the foreseeable future. Mac, how about you? I'd, I'd echo Stephen's sentiment. I think it's important to look at the long-term picture here that this housing crisis is decades in the making. And even if everything was to go according to plan and all these agencies at the state and local level were going to streamline housing permit approvals as fast as humanly possible, we're still looking at a significant lead time in terms of financing and developing these projects. And so, you know, looking at one or two examples of recent developments in your town and in those being developments being unaffordable uh, to most households is, is not a fair assessment of, of what's needed to address the long term uh, discrepancy in the market here. So I think it, it's going to take action at the state, local and local level to uh, both on the public and private side to address this crisis. And we need to do so effectively and as soon as possible, because there's uh, no reason to continue delaying. Yeah, I agree with both of you. I think from my perspective, the issue that hits home so much that I, I wish people would think about uh, more often is how the lack of housing impacts our communities and our environment. Having our essential workforce, having to travel uh, from out of town areas into town with long commutes is not only a problem for the fabric of our communities, but also a problem for our, our environment and as the state tries to achieve its climate action goals. So that's why, uh, I, you know, the state has been so closely monitoring trips and, and traffic and has changed the way we analyze traffic in our, in our environmental review to focus on, on these issues. And if we could just understand that a little bit more about uh, at the local level as we consider particular projects. I think it'll help uh, local jurisdictions make the right decision for more housing. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.